Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Denise Hearn, the author of The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition. Denise, welcome. Thank you so much, Alex. Appreciate being here. So I thought this is a great opportunity to have a conversation with you, particularly at a time when we're seeing Google, Facebook, Amazon and Apple uh, about to face Congress around antitrust. And we're actually Mm -hmm. 20 years since the Microsoft antitrust case. How did we actually get to this stage where we're back into this dilemma where there's just such massive companies that are controlling the marketplace? Yeah, it is It is sort of an interesting parallel, especially given the fact that Microsoft is not among the companies that are being asked to testify. And I think there are some, some people that believe that having the Microsoft case brought nearly 20 years ago, and although they were not broken up, they had that, as Tim Wu describes this policeman at the elbow, which made them essentially not be able to monopolize perhaps uh, as much as they would like in particular industries, search being one of them. And that actually paved the way for other startups to compete, one of which was Google. And so in a way, the antitrust uh, case back 20 years ago allowed for a more open and competitive market, which then bred these new types of internet platforms. I mean, the interesting thing about the internet was it really was meant to be this decentralized platform where Uh, You could link to all kinds of information and there wasn't sort of one central place from which you had to receive that information. But as we know now, Google and particularly Facebook, 70% of all internet traffic now moves through those the universe of those two companies. And they get the lion's share, of course, of advertising revenue and internet profits. And I think Google controls like 92% of online search. And so it certainly has become a scenario where the internet now is sort of beholden to these choke points of who controls information. And, and that's deeply concerning. And, you know, Amazon as well is a, a little bit of a different beast, but they, in so many ways, the these companies now control the fundamental infrastructure on which business takes place. And that's what makes them very dangerous. And Amazon, there was a a great piece in the Wall Street Journal recently that was talking about how even in their invest, they have an investment vehicle. And there were case after case after case of them basically investing in companies or doing due diligence on companies to then just simply launch a competitive version of the product that they had either acquired or done due diligence on and and basically catching and killing these these entrepreneurs and their great ideas. And, And so I think we're in this position where unfortunately these companies now make up just a huge amount of the value of the S&P. And it's really difficult to put into perspective how much dominance they have, not only in terms of value capture, but in terms of information capture, in terms of control of the fundamental infrastructure of commerce. And so it's very right that we're back in this position of needing to investigate and potentially look to uh, antitrust enforcement action against them. It's really strange. It's like we've learned nothing over the last 20 years. And is part of the problem that the government doesn't understand the regulatory change with these types of businesses? Like historically, when you looked at railroads, 
or the telecommunications with Baby Bell and and the railroads, it was pretty clear. You had a a very neat structure of what competition should look like and and anti-competition particularly. But in this sort of regulatory environment, it gets really convoluted when you've got Google saying, well, hold on, anyone can start a search engine. Uh, Amazon right. said anyone can start a, a a web services or a or a website to sell books and and goods. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons, and exactly, you're exactly right, Alex. I think one of one of the major reasons too is that they were offering free products, right? And a lot of particularly antitrust, there was an intellectual capture that said that as long as companies were benefiting consumers and lowering prices for consumers, then we shouldn't be concerned, which of course is not true to the original sort of letter of the of the law of antitrust and the original impetus, which was really to challenge corporate power and and challenge it when it came to such a degree that it also was able to wield political power. And we see now that, of course, these companies wield enormous political power. Even under President Obama, Google met with Obama's administration more than any other company in history. And so you can see that certainly I think that intellectual capture was one piece of it. I also think to your point that, yeah, it is difficult for regulators to perhaps to understand the scale and the pace of the challenges that are before them as these businesses proliferate across you know, many different industries and their business models are sort of unique and never before seen to, to the same degree. But then I also think that it's fundamentally baked into this sort of profit maximization narrative and economic system, of course, that that continues to dominate. And it makes complete sense that these companies have acted in this way because that's that's the market under which they are being told to compete. And every business student learns borders five forces and how you're supposed to build moats around your business and drive out your competitors. And so in a way they're only they're only acting in their own self-interest. I think there's something we write about in the book called um the fallacy of composition, which is the irony is that when everyone does that, when everyone acts in their own self-interest, even though we're told that this is how economic markets function, often that leaves everyone in a worse off position. And the example is if you stand at a football game to get a better view or a soccer game, then that benefits you for the moment. But then everyone behind you starts standing up and before you know it, the whole stadium is on their feet and you actually have a worse off view than you did previously. And so I think these companies operate in what they deem kind of the best interests of their company and particularly their investors and their shareholders. But ultimately, when we look at a mac- sort of the macro economic landscape, that can actually leave everyone very fragile. And I think that that that's certainly a part of what we're trying to, to argue the case for is that then you make, when you have this kind of monopolization of industries, not just with tech, but across many industries, uh, it actually leads to a lot of other concurrent problems like this economic inequality where you end up cannibalizing your own marketplace in many ways. It's very interesting you talk about the economic inequality that comes from this because the whole premise of this free market system is that you've got the Schumpeter model of creative destruction where you improve uh, systems, you improve quality of products, you have a transformation in the economy that now my, my mm-hmm. concern is that when you've got these very large businesses, that there actually is minimal incentive for them to push hard or to really compete like a true oh, yeah. capital market. Right, of course, they become these sort of giant behemoths like the Titanic, they're very, very difficult to turn around, but also that there's very little incentive for the, them to spend on R&D uh, and or CapEx or these these types of or even investment in workers, you know, and and that's certainly what we've seen, especially in the U.S. with the Trump tax cuts. I mean, the majority of the 
the windfall for for companies went straight back into stock buybacks to pump the stock price instead of investing in R&D. And what we're seeing is right now with given coronavirus too, a lot of the tech companies in particular had a lot of cash on balance sheet. And so they're in the position where they can now buy up distressed companies if they had competitors or they have you know innovations they've been watching for a while and these companies are distressed due to coronavirus, then, you know, they can acquire them on the cheap. And we're starting, and we saw actually that back in April, I think April and May of this year, there was another huge surge in acquisitions on behalf of the tech companies. And that's how they essentially do R&D these days is they don't even bother doing it internally. They just acquire, uh, which really, you know, doesn't benefit the market because either a, they often end up don't actually commercializing a lot of the innovations that they do acquire because maybe they're not core to the business model or there just isn't the, you know, the case to be made for it. Or B, it maybe it threatens an existing channel of revenue or something. And so they just shelve it. And, you know, there's a whole there's a whole website called the Google Graveyard and it talks about different companies that have gone by the wayside after they got acquired or that Google just basically flushed out of the system. And the same thing's happening with Amazon. And so I think that certainly is is problematic because we're seeing some of the lowest rates of business dynamism historically now. And the whole premise of free markets is that anyone can kind of start up a business, have an idea, launch it into the world and compete on the merits. And that's certainly not what we're seeing today. The big problem that seems to come to me when you talk about this is that when you've got such large organizations, you are hollowing out the economy because the small groups just can't compete. And particularly because a lot, a lot of these very large organizations, whether it's Google, Facebook, or even Amazon, they can borrow money so cheaply in this environment. And they're even supported by the Fed, actually, in terms of the Fed buying some of their bonds. And so yeah, these guys yeah, have exactly. just got unlimited sources of financing and can afford to lose money. And so shareholders seem to support that in the meantime and, and effectively mm-hmm. hollow out the poor mom and dad shops that are trying to maybe sell sports gear or shoes or some other goods because Amazon can do it more effectively, cheaply, and also for lower cost. Oh, absolutely. And do you remember when Amazon wasn't profitable for like the first eight years of operation or whatever it was, and shareholders just had this unlimited patient capital to let them keep losing, 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 because there was this hope and promise of future returns, which obviously have turned out well, but businesses just don't have that ability. And there was uh, one story where there was a a company called diapers.com, which was selling diapers online and Amazon wanted to acquire them and they refused. And then basically Amazon just started producing its own diapers through Amazon basics and selling them at some exorbitant loss. I can't remember the exact stats, but it was like a quarter of a million dollars every quarter or something. Right. And how was that business diapers.com supposed to compete with that? They just didn't have the liquidity to be able to lose money at that pace. And eventually, you know, eventually they had to acquiesce and, and get acquired by them. And then I think ultimately Amazon just decided they didn't actually want that business and like spun it off or I can't remember what happened there, but you know, it just, it's like another, there's, there's so many stories like this where it does make it very, very difficult for even medium sized enterprises who are, have good revenues and, and have employees that they're trying to keep employed. It just makes it very difficult for them to compete. It's actually not even just the medium companies. I know, I remember reading an example of of Nike and, and having a fight with Amazon because Amazon was able to basically dictate how much traffic was going through to the Nike store and, and taking a cut of revenue. And, and even just their, their web platform was seen to be anti-competitive by, by Nike. 
Oh yeah. Well, I think because so many now of the online product searches begin on Amazon. And so even the large brands are sort of beholden now to offer their products there, even though there's been complaints of all these um, counterfeit products and things that, that Amazon hasn't bothered to clean up and different problems, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, even the large brands are totally beholden to, to them again, because they have created this fundamental infrastructure on which they do business. And then the funny thing, or not so funny, but basically Amazon, of course, which is part of the antitrust potential case against the, these companies and Amazon in particular, is that they are supposedly offering a neutral platform upon which consumers can make a decision about the best product, right? But then um, like 45% of the products they offer on amazon.com are Amazon branded products or Amazon owned products. And so they're in direct competition with other third party sellers on their site and they can favor their own products or they can, they can look at Nike and they, they can say, oh, this shoe, this size, this design is doing really well. If they ever wanted to get into shoes, they know exactly what consumers like. And they've done this with numerous different products. And so it's, it's only a matter of time before they try to get more and more of the marketplace under their own umbrella. It really highlights the the real uh, potential of data and, and the importance of data because you've got so much of an insight of how people are behaving. And what sort of comes to me in this in current environment is that there's now a lot of regulation coming in around data and, and privacy and so forth, but it feels like it's almost going to then entrench these large companies because they were the first movers, they have the data, and it actually gets more difficult for for new people to come and compete because the Googles and the Amazons have got all this data about your behavior over the last 10, 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that that was one of the critiques of GDPR in Europe, which came in and uh, had data privacy rules for companies and which data they could collect. And uh, I know that one of the complaints was that for small and medium-sized businesses, it became very onerous. But of course, for their large businesses, they could afford to comply. And you know, we saw this, certainly this was the exact same thing that happened with financial regulation after the financial crisis, which was that Dodd-Frank came in in the U.S. and the, the new regulation was so onerous, you know, thousands of pages that only the largest incumbents could afford to comply with it. And uh, in fact, we've seen a number of small and medium-sized banks shutter across the country. And then, you know, we don't really recognize the effects of that until you even get something like coronavirus and trying to distribute the federal loans and support to small businesses. Well, so many of those small banks that used to have relationships within the communities have disappeared. And it made it very, very difficult, actually, that the whole infrastructure had had totally evaporated. And it made it very difficult to actually get money to the places where it was intended to go the most. And, you know, you can have Jamie Dimon now, you know, calling this the, the golden age of banking. Well, I think that's the irony sometimes of regulation that, of course, the large incumbents tend to decry it with all kinds of kabuki theater. But at the end of the day, they ultimately know that it can sometimes, you know, counterintuitively strengthen their position and actually further entrench their dominance. One of the things that comes to mind when you talk about this current situation of, of monopolies is the investors. And that's obviously the primary audience of market narratives and institutional investors. And so on one hand, they can look at this and say, this is pretty terrible. I can see that it's, it's going to hollow out the economy. But on the other hand, they start to say, well, hold on a second. This is the sort of business with you know, very strong moats, very strong pricing power. This is actually what we'd like to invest in. So how do you then sort of <laughs> frame that? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, this is this is the great irony, because in our book, we go through industry by industry and talk about a lot of different companies, because of course, this is this is way more prolific than just tech. I mean, it's everywhere. It's beer, it's airlines, it's agriculture, hospital systems, it's it's funeral services. I mean, really, the, the list goes on and on. And so, of course, many, many you know, hedge fund clients of ours at the time said, oh, this is great. You've just laid the roadmap for us. And to that, I would say, I think, of course, it makes sense. Again, this is back to the sort of um, fallacy of composition. It makes sense if you're thinking in a very narrow lens about how to maximize profits in the shortest amount of time possible. What I would also say is that when we think more in terms of systems and systems thinking, if you look at natural systems, whenever you get monopolized uh, crops, you degrade the soil to such a degree that it ends up becoming fallow and very difficult to grow anything else in it. And it also becomes very susceptible to disease and exogenous shock. And so you get things like the Irish potato famine, right? And and so when we get this kind of monopolization in any market, it makes the entire ecosystem very fragile and susceptible to shock. And so you look at even something like the example with Warren Buffett, who never used to invest in airlines. You know, he said, oh, I'm, I would never touch them with a 10-foot pole. And then as soon as the industry consolidated to the four major players, he became the, the primary and secondary shareholder in all four of those companies. And that worked really well for many years. And, you know, he's gotten completely clobbered with coronavirus because no one could have foreseen the kind of fragility that we've baked into the system now with something like coronavirus. And we're only going to be seeing more and more of the systemic risk happening, whether it's climate related or inequality related, you know, geopolitical. I think on the one hand, sure, if you want to find moated industries and invest in them because they are price makers and they can get, you know, high returns on capital, I think of course that will work for a time. But I think there will come a time where actually there's enough sort of um, latent risk that's built up into the system where that is just no longer going to hold. And so that is the, I guess that that would be the warning that I would issue on the other side of this. And of course, it's very industry dependent. I mean, there's certain industries that will come out of coronavirus much more entrenched and dominant like tech, and there are others that have been really hit by this. And so I think it also is sort of dependent case by case on the industry. Do you see a clash of ideology around ESG focus for a lot of asset owners and almost turning a blind eye to this monopolistic, monopsony-style competition? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just makes me giggle that half you know, half of the funds that I look at that are supposedly ESG or some sort of like a just capitalist fund basically just has all the tech monopolies as their top holdings. And it just seems like there's no second order thinking. There's even one, which I won't mention, but, you know, it highly ranks Google because, oh, it treats its employees so well. And I just have no idea, but I can imagine that they don't take into account the fact that Google is now more than 50% contract workers and that does not factor into their ESG rating. And so, yeah, I think I spent a lot of my time thinking about different new types of investment models and new types of markets that actually can undo some of the some of the problematic effects of the current markets and how they're how they're set up and i think that unfortunately a lot of esg although i think it's been positive in many ways as a stepping stone to perhaps a more fulsome understanding of how we need to see all things in relation to one another i think a lot of it ends up being um frankly some some great marketing and and not a lot of uh, not a lot of second order thinking about what the actual effect of some of these companies is that they have in their portfolios. 
what can be done here because typically we all rely on regulation but unfortunately for a lot of these entrenched players they've got huge amounts of money they've got very powerful lobbyists they know how to game the system what have you been thinking about specifically around how to try and improve the the marketplace yeah i mean it's obviously it's a really complex question and i do not claim to have the answers i think there's different levels to this and i think at the most transformational level when you talk to any systems thinker uh, and there's a famous one named danella meadows who is sort of the quintessential systems thinker that everyone quotes she says that the greatest leverage for systems change is actually changing paradigms and transcending paradigms and the problem is is that we've had so many years i mean especially 40 years of the last you know deregulation and sort of this mechanistic view of markets and it's just amazing that we think that markets can be calculable because you know, they have inputs and outputs and and we see it as very mechanistic, like a clock, but actually the market is so much more like an ecosystem, like a forest. So it's complex, it's adaptive, uh, it's emergent, it's non, non-linear and non-mathematically calculable, actually. And we just, so there's some groups that are doing a lot of deep thinking about this, like um, the Santa Fe Institute and others who are trying to apply complexity thinking to markets. And I find that a really interesting stream of thinking, which again, I think will cause us to hopefully look at markets in a, in a different and more integrated way, as in there's no such thing as externalities, right? That you only push those down into the future. And when we have, I mean, the biggest evidence and example of this kind of linear thinking is with the central bankers who have gone into tremendous debt. I mean, global debt is at all-time highs. The U.S., I think, has gone from $4 trillion to 20 trillion in a matter of a couple of decades. And the the reality is, and I know most asset owners know this, there's no way we're going to grow our way out of this debt. I mean, there's just no way. And that is what everyone isn't talking about. And yet we think that we can continue to borrow from the future to pay kind of for the sins of today in a, in a way. And at some point, this is going to all come to a head. I, I know someone who thinks that eventually the central banks will just do a, a debt jubilee and just say, okay, we're going to, you know, we're just going to actually forgive all debt because they'll, they'll be left with no other options. And the low interest rate environment has been, of course, problematic in many ways. I think there's, there's some really sort of far out thinkers that actually think that, that return more ancient wisdom, which actually says that usury and actually building an entire economic system on interest bearing debt is, is, (laughs) is not going to end well. So I think there's, there's some very fundamental paradigms at the base of this, which need to be questioned. And then I think in the more near term, Term, when we think about changing systems, we our impulse is to always go to you know, some sort of regulation, which is to sort of rein it in or contain it in some way. But I do think that there are more fundamental questions that we need to be asking and reframing our narratives away from mechanistic things like clocks and and really starting to think differently about how to understand markets. You mentioned the impact of the Fed and the fallouts, the externalities that are coming. One of the things you haven't talked about is the social unrest that we've seen globally. I think there's also another real big factor here, and that's people feeling that they've missed out. Um, mm-hmm. And they feel that it's very hard to to make a life and a career for themselves. It's very hard to, to buy a house and the cost of life is getting very expensive. How much do you see this myth of capitalism that actually plays into sort of the unrest that we see today? think it's totally inextricably linked. And this is the first generation for which most people will not be better off than their parents. And there is something, a a sort of like deep sense of, of that. 
for people. And I think when you look at some of my favorite books to bring into to this discussion are things like The True Believer by Eric Hoffer, uh, who studied mass movements throughout time and political movements. And he actually was writing this right off of the heels of World War II and, and the rise of Nazism in Germany. And, you know, what he said is actually the strongest sort of uprisings tend to happen when you have a group of people who had opportunities and they've seen it slip away. So they're worse off than they used to be and they feel disenfranchised and they want to make change. And, and that is sort of the same playbook over and over. And usually, unfortunately, when you look at history, the other book that I like is Lessons from History. He talks about how all of human history goes through these cycles. And one of the cycles is, is that wealth accumulates very slowly and then dissipates very quickly. And it's often with bloodshed and revolution or war or something. And, you know, we just don't seem to be able to move beyond these like very natural cycles that have been baked in for, for so long. And so, yeah, I do think that we are at this point in history where we're seeing this kind of peak accumulation of wealth and people are frustrated. And I think unless we really turn turn to one another and say, there can be a better way of doing this instead of all doing with what we normally do, which is how do I get my piece of the pie before it all blows up? Now, I think we might have a chance to, to turn it around. I think if we don't do that, then I, I do think that we're on the brink of something not going so well. And I think that the uprisings that you're seeing around the world, they had the the flashpoint of race. I think there are a lot of other factors involved in and people wanting to demonstrate and sort of feeling that political frustration. It's really interesting. And one of the people maybe you haven't mentioned is Neil Howe and the fourth turning. I think there's a mm-hmm. real there's a real focus at the moment around left and right views, which is clearly not the problem here. I really no. feel that it's the inequality issue that's squeezing people day to day and they just feel frustrated. And so the ability to speak out is coming. How do you then think about what can we do as a country, as a community to try and improve this situation? Yeah, well, I think, forgive me, because our research is predominantly focused on the US, although this happens in Australia, this happens everywhere in Canada, even basically the problem of regulatory capture where these corporate interests or people within positions of power regulators as well end up having this revolving door between those companies and the regulatory agencies that are supposed to protect and serve citizens. And so I think that is one of the major problems that we've seen in in the US and certainly in Australia. And so that is a much harder thing to solve. But that certainly is one of the key pieces here. I also think that we have these democratic systems, but they're still very hierarchical. And so much of the decision making is not distributed in a meaningful way. People don't actually participate meaningfully in the political system because it feels out of touch or out of reach. And I think that there's some really interesting examples. One of my favorite is in Taiwan, the digital minister of innovation there is doing all these incredible experiments gathering data on what citizens actually want. And she says, what's super interesting, she says that there's actually way less division in terms of particular policies when you ask people what they want to see happen. We tend to have this idea that we're all so super polarized and very divided. But when you actually get the data on a whole range of issues, there's some sort of long tails on either side, but the majority of people are actually in agreement on many things. And this is the same in in the States, but then you actually have political representatives that don't end up enacting what the majority of their constituents actually want. And I think that's another source of this disillusionment with the political system is that it feels like regardless of the party in charge, it just 
ends up feeling like they actually are not operating on behalf of the citizens and, and the citizen majority opinion on, on many issues. And so I think if there were different ways of organizing our political systems to better match what citizens desire, I actually think that could be hugely helpful too. And there have been a number of different proposals, at least in the US, in terms of how that might happen. It's interesting you sort of talk about the political aspects because a lot of people have have gained out of capitalism, particularly through the 60s and 70s in the US. But now we're seeing this real push towards very much uh, socialist style policies that are coming through. And, mm-hmm. and it's part of the reason that capitalism, people see capitalism as failing is because it's not actually true capitalism that we're seeing today. And hence people then say, well, hold on, we need more socialist style policies. Well, I'm of the opinion that the capitalism socialism binary is completely unhelpful and untruthful. I mean, there, first of all, there's no country in the world that operates a truly 100% free market, unfettered by any kind of regulation. Every single country in the world, aside from a few, employs the use of a mixed system, right? And and even when you look at like the Heritage Foundation in the US, which is very sort of right-wing conservative think tank, publishes a list of the freest economies in the world every year. And every year, you know, the top two are Hong Kong and Singapore. And I've lived in both places. And it just is laughable to me because Hong Kong is similarly controlled by a number of oligarchical families, all family oligarchies, which they have many duopolies in some of the, you know, the whether it's the supermarkets or energy or name the industry. And of course, as we're seeing now with China, which is exerting more and more influence there. So they they certainly don't have free, free competitive markets. And then in Singapore, I mean, 80% of Singaporeans live in state-owned housing. Singapore has a huge sovereign wealth fund. They invest in state-owned enterprises. And so this illusion that we have that there's some sort of like idealized free market state it's just not a reality. And Anand Giridharatis, who I really like as well and appreciate just because he's such a great rhetorician, says, we have a better understanding of gender fluidity than we do of economic fluidity in this country, which is crazy. And he says, you know, you're driving down the highway and you are in your car, that's a product of capitalism, and you're driving on the highway and that's a product of socialism. And every day we interact with these two systems interchangeably. And so there really is not, there isn't this binary between the two systems. I think that's one of the major challenges of moving forward is trying to find language to describe the type of markets that we want that isn't so polarizing and without this sense of nuance, because I think that's one of the major problems today. Thank you very much for your time today, Denise. Thanks, Alex. I really appreciate being on. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.